you or someone you love needs help for an addiction, where do you turn? Foundations Recovery Network offers individualized treatment for the whole person. Our goal goes beyond short-term sobriety. We address substance abuse and co-occurring mental health issues together, providing a firm foundation for long-term recovery. The first step is often the hardest, but we're here with a free assessment, insurance information, and treatment options. Our confidential helpline is available 24-7, so call 877-714-1318 and discover the Foundation's Recovery Network difference today. This is Brian Cuban, and you're listening to Sober Guy Radio. That Sober Guy podcast contains adult content, merciless truth, and emotional nudity. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for tuning in today. Thanks to humans for bringing us in. And thanks to you for supporting the show. Have you checked out the I Am Sober app? If not, you can go to that soberguy.com right now and you can download it there for free. Uh, I Am Sober app is helping thousands of people just like you get sober and stay sober. Uh, best of all, the app is free. You can get an overview of your sobriety milestones. You can see how much money you've saved uh, by not blowing it all on booze and drugs. And think about all the things you can buy with all those other things, uh, uh, with all that money instead of those other things that have to do with booze and drugs. So I think I've saved something around the lines of $30,000, somewhere right around there. Uh, And and that's estimating it at about 20 bucks a day for me, which I kind of uh, uh, calculated over a long period of time. Uh, you also get daily notifications to help keep your ass on track and headed in the right direction. Uh, one of my favorite parts about it too. So like I said, you can go to that sober You can get it there. It's got the iTunes app store link there in the Google play store, uh, link. And you can also go to the direct website. Also, I am sober and you can pick it up there for free. All right. We're going to get to our guest today. Super pumped to talk to Brian Cuban. Um, Brian is the younger brother of Dallas Mavericks owner and entrepreneur, Mark Cuban, and uh, he's a Dallas based attorney, author and addiction recovery advocate. Uh, he's also a graduate of Penn state university and the university of Pittsburgh school of law. And Brian's been in long-term recovery from alcohol, cocaine, and bulimia since April of 2007. Uh, so Brian, man, it's great to have you on the show today, man. Thanks for taking some time with us. How are you? I'm doing well, Shane. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, so I've been I've been pumped to chat with you, get to know you a little bit. Um, I know there's a lot more to your bio. I know you put a book out in June, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, the Addicted Lawyer. Um, first, let's get to know you a little bit. Let's give our audience a little background uh, about how you got to where you are today. Sure. Well, as as you said, I've been in long term recovery from cocaine, alcohol, and bulimia. Yes, guys do get eating disorders since April of 2007. Uh, I grew up in Pittsburgh, PA. I'm the middle of three brothers. Mark, a lot of people know, Shark Tank and the Mavs, is the oldest, and I have a younger brother, Jeff. So, you know, we grew up there, uh, really a middle-class family. Our father fixed cars. And my troubles really began to start in college as a freshman in Penn State. I was a very shy person. Uh, I was also bullied severely in high school. Mm-hmm. I was even physically assaulted. Uh, primarily having to do with my weight. 
So I had a lot of underlying mental health issues. And in, in 1979, the fall of 1979, when I uh, went to Penn State, I began to restrict because in my mind, if I was, would lose weight, I began to restrict my food intake because in my mind, if I lost weight, I would be accepted. I was someone at that time who had never been on a date, who had never held a girl's hand, who had never kissed a girl. And I had a very difficult relationship with my mom at the time. That is not to blame my mother for anything I went through. Parents do not cause addiction. Parents do not cause eating disorders. But the home environment can be important. And so there was a lot of fat shaming in my household. My mother fat shamed me. She was fat shamed by her mother. You know how these mm. things often happen yeah. generationally. Yeah. And so in my mind, the way to love and acceptance was to get thinner. And before I know it, I had uh, developed an eating disorder, first anorexia and then bulimia. Mm. And I developed these things 1979, 1980, before anyone was even talking about these for women let alone guys, right? Yeah, 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 totally. Well, you don't so, hear that. You don't like you'd already kind of mentioned it. Bulimia, yes, guys do get it too. It's not very common. You don't hear about it often. So, I mean, it, it is. It's interesting, and it is good to know that you're kind of bringing it up and talking about it openly because you don't you don't hear about it often. You do not, Shane. In the the hard statistics are, however, that about twenty five percent of all those with eating disorders are male. Really? So, and we yeah, we don't hear about that. But we we hear about it a lot more now than certainly back in the day. Yeah. You know when I first developed it. I mean, uh, this was 1979, 1980, and when I developed bulimia, bulimia had only been a diagnosis in the uh, clinical diagnosis since 1976. Hmm. So wow. I did not know what eating disorders were, but I knew that these inherently felt shameful. These things that I was doing, but. For people who don't know what bulimia is, it's binging and purging. Every time I binged and purged, I got this high yeah. where I felt like the next day, almost like a cocaine high. It was what I, having been through both. <laughs> almost The next day, I felt like everything would be okay. I would be loved. I'd be accepted. And of course, when that high went away, what happens is this shame swoops into your stomach that's not of engaging in an act that feels shameful but not understanding what it is. Yeah. So what happens? You have to have that high again and again and again. And I, the life of a bulimic, whether you're male or female. And what happened was in, when, I, when I turned 21 and became old enough to drink, I had been drinking. I had experimented with drinking going back to high school yeah. and gotten drunk and done all those things. But I really started to use alcohol as my self-medication to not feel the feelings of shame and loneliness, clinical depression that I had been dealing with dating back to my teenage years. Mm. And before I knew it, as a sophomore at Penn State University, I was an alcoholic, quote unquote, alcoholic. And so I was drinking just to be able to leave the house. I would have to get drunk. I would go to, we have what we call the state store, the liquor stores. I would buy a bottle of Jose Corvo and I would drink the pint before I would actually leave the house wow. <laughs> to get drunk. And yeah. I don't know. We, we just, we just took a trip out to Philly recently and you said the state, you know, the state liquor stores and I still couldn't wrap my brain around that whole concept yes. of like, uh, cause a couple of my buddies I was with, they, you know, they like to indulge in a few beers or whatever. And they, they were like, we can't find beer anywhere. I was like, what's going on in this state, man. It's a little different than out here in California. Yes, I can't wrap my head around the fact that Pennsylvania <laughs> still has state stores. It's still yeah. the liquor the liquor trade is still controlled by the state. There's a lot of politics about it. Got that's it, got it. Issue. Totally. But uh, 
but so yes, I had had a real. I developed a, as a problem drinker, like I said, quote unquote alcoholic, at Penn State, and I was getting drunk pretty much every night, and I was uh, coming going to class drunk. And it's funny, I remember Shane. The closest I ever came to really any self awareness and recovery was walking into a hamburger joint back then, drunk, of course. <laughs> And the, back then, you were either in 12-step, in a hospital, or you weren't in recovery. Got it. We did not have residential treatment and all those things. Yeah. So the 12-step groups, and of course, we know AA is the largest of those for alcohol, and we all, but there's also a celebration, celebrate yeah. recovery. But so the, the 12-step groups would put out the pamphlets, the 20 questions in these racks. And you would open it up, okay, answer this many questions, and you just might be an alcoholic. <laughs> and and yeah. the, these were tailored towards college students. And do you miss class? Yes. Do you black out? Yes. Boom, boom. Yes, yes, yes. I crumpled it up, threw it in the garbage. I'm just a college student. We all drink, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of that, socially, funny, I, that socially acceptable, man, that's, that's the shit that you do in college. You drink, you party, you have a, you have a damn good time, and uh, then we go on with our lives and we're all fine and dandy that's after right. that. But, which, but of course, everyone who drinks and parties isn't drinking every night and partying every night and yeah, yeah, true. allowing it to disintegrate their, you know, their lifestyle, mm -hmm. their, their life. It's funny. I speak at a lot of colleges, and I, whenever I speak, some kid will always raise your hand, raise their hand, and say, "Well, you're not an alcoholic till you graduate." And I'm like, "Well, <laughs> yeah. uh, no, that's not true. I was an alcoholic, and I was a binge drinking alcoholic, and I'll tell you what, it sucked." <laughs> yeah. Do you uh, do you enjoy speaking at the colleges? I mean, I think that's that's like phenomenal work to be out there, kind of in the trenches, just getting after it and actually speaking uh, to to young adults out there. Do you is that something that you really enjoy? I do. I do. I get asked for colleges. It's more along the eating disorder line mm -hmm. as much as much as the drinking. But the drinking is an integral part of my story. So I cover that anyways. Got it. Got it. But uh, so, yeah, I didn't so, mean to, yes, I didn't mean I to throw you off there. Yeah. But um, so you, you were oh. saying, uh, you know, in college, um, you, you were you were basically an alcoholic and you were taking the test and you threw the piece of paper in the garbage. That's and said, right. Whatever. So take so, it from there. I, I, I was at, I, I graduated from Penn State. I had kind of a gift. I was able to pull it together for a night, pull an all-nighter studying, and do pretty well on exams. And I had also developed what is known as exercise bulimia. What exercise bulimia is is when you – is obsessive-compulsive exercise for the primary purpose of offsetting calories. Hmm. So now I'm – I was running up to 20 miles a day. So I'm running 20 miles Damn. a day. I'm getting drunk, and I'm binging and purging. There were some days, Shane, I was so dehydrated that I couldn't get out of bed, and my heart would go into arrhythmia. I was very lucky I didn't have a stroke. Yeah, that doesn't sound too healthy, Brian. <laughs> no. no. Man. So now I'm, now I'm graduating from Penn State, and my resume is that I'm bulimic, I'm alcoholic, <laughs> and I'm depressed, and, I, and I'm suffering yeah. from depression. And I'm, I'm trying to think what I'm, I have to decide what I'm going to do with my life. I originally wanted to be a police officer. I was a criminal justice major. That would have worked out well, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'd have been the first guy in the evidence room switching the uh, manitol for the cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> but, swapping uh, it out, taking it home. Swapping out the baby yeah. laxative. That's right. Oh, yeah. So um, I have to decide what I want to do with my life. Obviously, I don't want to go into out in the work world because I want to keep ownership of my drinking, my binging and purging and be able to run 20 miles a day. That's all I wanted to do because I was a very lonely, depressed person. Again, I had not been on I, this. Is, 
graduating from college, I had still never kissed a girl, never held a girl's hand. I had had a had a terrible relationship with my mom over the fat shaming and things. Yeah. So I'm sitting in the placement office of Penn State, and there are these two guys talking about going to law school, and they're talking about going to pit law. And the bells start going off my head, off of my head. I had never wanted to be a lawyer. I'd never thought about law school before that. Hmm. But you know what I thought about? That I could stay in school for three more years. I could drink. Oh, wow. I could run 20 miles a day. And I could binge and purge and not have to show my ugliness that I felt, the monster I saw in the mirror, not have to reveal my true self to anybody. That is the only reason I went to law school. So, so you, so you, you kind of figured out that you could mask this identity behind by, by continuing on in school and and going to law school to become a lawyer when not, you didn't necessarily want to be a lawyer. There was kind of an ulterior motive. Is that correct? (laughs) That's correct. That is exactly exactly it. I had no desire to be a lawyer. Hmm. I wanted to be able to not have to reveal these issues I had to anyone. Wow. So. That must have been tough, sense. man. That must have been tough, though, too, for, you know, you as a, a young adult trying to figure out, you know, who the hell you are. But at the same time, you're masking who you really are and you don't really know because you're, um, you know, constantly drinking or uh, having these issues with uh, with bulimia. That's tough, man, being a young adult going through that. So where does it, it kind of go to after that? Well, I went on to pit law. I went on to pit law. I got into pit law school and as you might imagine, I didn't do very well because in law school, you can't just study for a night and do well on the exam. Yeah, yeah. You're competing with everyone else who has done well in undergrad. Yeah. So, so it doesn't quite work like that. And I graduated by the skin of my teeth. Hmm. And I still have – it was so close that I still have reoccurring dreams about the dean of my law school trying <laughs> – I go to get my diploma, and he says, psych, you didn't graduate. <laughs> were but, you like, when you found out that you graduated, were you like, holy shit, like, I, I fucking graduated. Like, I, I did it. Like, was it kind of a shock to you almost that after going through all that? Not really, because I really didn't care, Shane. I really, really? didn't care. I was, all I cared about was, again, it was the same thing. I repeated the cycles in law school, yeah. drinking, binging, and purging. My drinking got worse because of the pressure of law school. My bulimia got worse. I was binging and purging two and three times a day because of the because of the uh, stress, and so and and not really the stress of doing well because I really didn't care about that. The stress of being an outsider and the stress of being alone when I see you know study groups forming and cliques forming. Yeah. The stress of thinking that I was never going to be loved, that I was never going to be a lawyer, I was going to spend the next three years and then probably not graduate. But I really wouldn't say the stress, the, the, the desire to succeed in law school motivated me in any way. Yeah, yeah. It was the, it was the desire to survive day to hmm. day to day. And anyone dealing with addiction understands what that's like. Oh, totally, man. It's, you it were just trying, it's yeah. You were just trying to get through the day and then the next day and the next day. And that is all I knew, Shane. That is all I knew dating back to my teenage years, just trying to get through the day. Can you, uh, r- real quick, before, be, I, I, I want to, I, I don't mean to keep derailing the, the no, uh, not story all. aspect, but I really think it's important to point out 
Um, and I'm actually curious, even myself too, of your definition of this, but for those out there listening to, can you kind of define what binging and purging means and, and may, or maybe what it meant to you just to give, um, an example of what that looks like for somebody who might not know, they might say, well, am I binging? Am I purging? Like, what did that look like to you? Okay, binging and purging, the eating disorder, bulimia, traditional bulimia is binging and purging. Binging is when and, – and I try not to get it real specific, not to trigger anyone. Sure, So sure. I'm going to give – if any one of your listeners is dealing with an eating disorder and could be triggered by this, don't listen to this. Right. <laughs> I The first time I ever binged and purged and when it started, my bulimia started was at Penn State. I went out and went to a Perkins Pancake House and gorged myself for two hours, came home and felt guilty about that. Eating was kind of a way for me to soothe depression. Yeah. I came home, I went to the, uh, I went to the toilet and I threw up. That's binging and purging. That is bulimia. Got it. it. Okay. Perfect. That is what bulimia is. Binging and purging and for exercise bulimia is instead of the traditional throwing up, you exercise to offset the calories. Does Hmm. that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is, I, yeah. So those are what those two things means mean in terms of eating disorders. So you're 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 in college. Like where where does this start to go from there after you graduate and you you are done with so law school? So I I get through I get through law school by the skin of my teeth as an alcoholic. Uh, still not in any kind of recovery, not in any kind of treatment. You know, no concept of any of that. No concept of twelve step. Uh, I kept to myself. So. People really didn't, you know, and, and when I went out to drink, I went out to drink at the bars, the local law school bar. So no one was really not even my law school roommates were really hip to the fact that I was that I had these issues. Yeah. Uh, so, again, I have to make the decision. What am I going to do with my life? And like Penn State, like law school, I just wanted to engage in the survival behaviors that I engaged in now for, you know, five, six years. Yeah. They had become my day-to-day routine, just like breathing. I decided that I would move to Dallas, Texas. I decided I was going to move to Dallas, Texas because I I wanted to get away from Pittsburgh where I had memories of bullying. And that's an interesting story that I'll tell you. Uh, And that's still a bad relationship with my mom, which we would repair later on in life. Yeah. And so I decided to move to Dallas because my older brother, Mark, had already moved there. My older brother, Jeff, and if I could live with them, we are very close. We love each other. And the love would look kind of save me, right? If love could save, if yeah. love could only <laughs> could cure addiction, right? Yeah, right. Or love could save me and everything would be okay. So I moved to Dallas in 1986. I moved in with my older brother, Mark. And it was like throwing gasoline on a fire, Shane, because this was 1986. They're in their 20s and 30s, early 30s. They're going out. They're dating. They're going to the clubs. They're drinking. They did not have drug issues. I'm the only one in the family to have these issues. Uh, So I fit right in, right? Yeah. I fit right in. My drinking got worse. I – I failed the Texas bar exam on the first time. It's funny. My my first time I took the Texas bar exam, my study aids for the Texas bar exam were an eight ball of cocaine, (laughs) a leader's tap, and a bottle of – uh, Jack Daniels. Oh man, dude! Those were my study aids for the Texas bar. You think I failed? <laughs> I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess that you did. <laughs> yes, I failed the Texas bar. I failed it twice before wow. I finally passed it, and I failed it twice because of uh, my issues with drugs and alcohol. More important to me 
than studying because addiction is not a choice, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so I moved. So I had those problems, and then in the summer of 1987, I discovered the one thing that I could look in the mirror, and for the 15 or seconds or 20 seconds or however long the high lasted, I looked in the mirror and finally loved myself. Hmm. Finally saw a Brian that I loved. Finally did not hate who I was. My mother loved me. My friends loved me. I did well in law school. The girls loved me. What do you think that was? I discovered cocaine. Oh, wow. I did my first line of cocaine in the bathroom of a hotel in Dallas, Texas in the summer of 1987. And Shane, I instantly became addicted to it. Instantly. Not in the physical dependence standpoint. That would come later. I would yeah. become physically dependent on cocaine in the psychological dependence. I Because... This was a feeling that I had wanted so badly all my life to be loved and to love myself, the need for acceptance, yeah. and a feeling that I could never capture. So can you imagine? So I'm starving, right? I'm a, I am a body, a, I am a mind starving for the love and acceptance to love myself. A body starving gets that line of cocaine, and boom, there's that love and acceptance. What do you think happens? I had to have that over and over and over again. Hmm. So that is how I instantly became a, addicted to cocaine in that bathroom in the summer of 1987. And from that point, it was Katie bar the door. Cocaine and alcohol took over my life. Uh, three failed marriages, all of them failing because of drugs and alcohol. Wow. Uh, a, a near suicide attempt in 2005, and we can talk specifically about these things. Uh, jail, DWI, and this I, I lost my law practice. My law career was destroyed. I wasn't disbarred or suspended or anything like that, but it wasn't for a lack of trying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't say that as a badge of honor. That's just the way it was. No, sure, sure. So, and then... And then finally finding recovery in 2007. But the cocaine and the alcohol really just took me. You know, it was as at first when you're younger, you're able to wear those masks, right? Where yeah. you can stay fairly high functioning as an appearance to the outside world. But as, as we know, addiction is progressive. And sooner or later, it, it's, and it, as it goes on and on, it becomes tougher to wear those masks, doesn't it, for any length of time? Oh, yeah, especially especially with cocaine, too. I mean, the nosebleeds and the, and the talkative, uh, I'm going to tell you, uh, you know, I'm going to get high on cocaine and tell you how they built the uh, Great Wall of China. But uh, I have no idea, you know, where they even begun at those types of things after a while. Um that thing gets exhausting at that, you know. I mean that that drug is uh, that's a oh man, it's a um, it's it's highly addictive, and it sounds like you're a lot like I was in that aspect, or I'm a lot like you are. However, you want to frame it up, where as soon as I get it in my system, I can't stop. I want more of it, and oh, it, it was oh, oh, it was yes. a really really bad bad time. I know for me. And that segues into a story. I'll tell you about that. Let's let's hear it. It was 2006. It was the summer of 2006. The uh, Dallas Mavericks, you know, my brother owns the Mavericks, were mm -hmm. going to the NBA championship for the very first time. And as you might imagine, Mark had bought the team in 2000. And so we're now we're going to the finals. As a very, we ended up losing to the Miami Heat. But as, as you might imagine, it was a very exciting time for the city, for yeah. my brother, for me. 
And as you might imagine, Shane, I was also going to get some pretty good seats for those games, right? <laughs> I would bet. <laughs> so I also have an opportunity to get a couple tickets for friends. For uh-huh. free tickets, I call up Mark, I get the tickets. Do you think I gave them to my friends? No. Maybe you're thinking of I sold them on eBay for some astronomical amount. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I didn't do that either because that would be disrespectful to my brother, the yeah. team. I took those two tickets and I traded them for scalpers prices and cocaine in my cocaine dealer. Oh my god! So selling them on eBay is disrespectful, but trading them to my cocaine dealer was perfectly <laughs> acceptable, right? Madness. How the mind makes an addiction, right? Holy shit! Who ended up sitting next to you at those seats? Well, well. So <laughs> yeah, I, I my my dealer shows up at the door because I was a high class addict. You know, he delivered. Yeah, yeah. Right, there you go. <laughs> I was a high class addict. Yeah. Uh, I give him the I give him the two tickets. He gives me this. Ziploc baggie of raw cocaine. I take it out. I run up to my home office and I chop it all up. And I, of course, I have to do some. But by this point, Shane, 2006, uh, cocaine had long stopped giving me the feelings. And so you start chasing the high, right? Yeah, sure. I have to switch. You switch dealers. You switch. You do this. You do that. You switch. Because you're trying to capture that first high that allowed me to love myself, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and it ends up becoming the shakes and this and that, a bad high, bad high, bad high, bad high, but you're also, it's never about recovery. It's about, I need to get a new dealer. Oh yeah. I need to get (laughs) some different, a different cut of something or. That's right. Yeah. So I be, I had also developed a very, uh, the cocaine paranoia that comes from long-term addiction. So I'm sitting with all this cocaine chopped out on my desk. Did your family know this too at this time? Just no. did they, so they had no clue. So you were still kind of wearing the mask at this time. Well, no, time. my brothers knew. My brothers knew because they did. about okay. a year before I had been to a uh, they had taken me to a psychiatric facility. Okay, got it. When I be, when I had become suicidal. Got it. So but obviously I didn't find recovery at that point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we can talk about that if you want. But so I get paranoid, so I put all the cocaine back in the Ziploc baggie. I hide it in the closet. I get in my car. I drive to a Home Depot. I go into the Home Depot. I buy electrical face plate outlets, a drill, and a saw. I drive back home. I take the cocaine. I put it into all these smaller Ziploc baggies. I go go to each closet. I drill fake electrical outlets in each closet, and I put the cocaine behind all these fake electrical outlets. Like the DEA, the cops, and the drug dogs have never thought of that one before. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> so thinking that was the smartest lawyer ever, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I do a little more, and again, just pain and shame and really had really reaching the rock bottom, quote-unquote rock bottom, in terms of both you know, the drug use and my life in general. Yeah. And I go, I get paranoid again. I have a lot of cocaine in this house. I'm a lawyer. I could go to jail for a long time. Yeah. Right. I know these things. <laughs> and so I go back to each electrical outlet, bzz, 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 take it all back out, put it in the Ziploc baggie, go up to the toilet and flush it down the toilet. Holy shit. Now it's $900 worth of cocaine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, so the next morning comes Shane. I wake up and it so often happens with addiction when the negative consequence, the negative feeling, the bad high gets in the rearview mirror. I'm an idiot. What did I just do? What did I do last night? I flushed $900 worth of cocaine down the toilet. What? I am such an idiot. There's another game tonight. Yeah. I I need more cocaine for the game tonight. 
another call to my brother, two more tickets, another call to my drug dealer. He shows up. You know, I didn't want to tell him I flushed it down the toilet. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, high tolerance. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. Like, he's like, dude. Yeah. <laughs> and so the same thing. I do a little bad high. I get paranoid. Bzz, 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 put it all behind the electrical outlets again. <laughs> get paranoid again. Take it all out. Put it back in the Ziploc bag. You go up to the bathroom again and flush it down the toilet. Damn. Two With nights the, in a row? The, two nights in a row. Oh, just $2,000 worth of cocaine. The quote-unquote insanity of addiction, right? Yeah. Even though addiction isn't insane. The, some of the things we do are kind of goofy. But – uh, I, you know, they say when Dallas flushes, it ends up in Houston. So some people <laughs> are really high that night. <laughs> yeah. That, was, but that was kind of, that kind of illustrates that story. My life in addiction as, I, as a lawyer dealing yeah. with cocaine addiction and alcohol. And it, it, it was, it was a progressive journey to that point. Like I said, uh, back in, in 2005, I'd become suicidal. I'd become so hopeless that I would never look in the mirror and see somebody I loved hmm. that uh, I decided to end my life. And I was very lucky, Shane. It was, it was close. Uh, I, my brothers came into my house, and I had a 45 automatic on my nightstand. Really? A friend had alerted to them who fortunately had stayed in my life and knew something was wrong. And he had uh, let both my brothers know, say, you need to go do check on your brother. There's a nit problem. Yeah. And they came in and there was cocaine everywhere. There was black market Xanax everywhere, alcohol everywhere. So they dragged me kicking and screaming down to a local psychiatric facility. And I was not ready for recovery. They're trying to save my life. You know what my only thought was? Get out of my house and leave me alone. Yeah, yeah. Where my brothers are trying to save me. So they took me down to the uh, psychiatric facility. It's called Green Oaks here in Dallas. We are in the psychiatric attending physician's uh, room, and I'm with the psychiatric nurse and the psychiatric physician. And my brothers are there. And, of course, I'm a lawyer. I knew what to say. I'm not a, So I wasn't a danger to myself. I wasn't a danger of, to others. I knew what to say to the doctor. So they couldn't hold me. That's how it is in Texas. They couldn't hold me. So we did what was called the Cuban rehab. My brother's took my car keys and said, stay in your house for two weeks and everything will be okay. (laughs) (laughs) My family's no different than anyone else. They didn't understand addiction. Now was the first time my brothers really saw what was going on. My father didn't know. My mom and I still had a bad relationship. So they didn't understand what to do. This was their first real experience with it. You know what my only thought was when they said that to me? What? No problem. My drug dealer delivers. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, that man. was the only thing I thought about. So, and I was so resistant to them telling me what to do. As soon as they left me there, I called a cab, went to a car dealership, and got a new set of car keys. <laughs> oh shit! And I wasn't going to be told what to do, right? Yeah. Well, I think I think what you said right there, you said something really key, and it's really simple. You said you weren't ready. And so a lot of, you know, I get this question a lot, like, you know, somebody trying to help a family member or somebody out there trying to uh, even get help themselves. Like, you know, if, if somebody's not ready, if, if, if I'm not ready, you know, if I wasn't ready when I went and got the help I need, like I would have, I would have failed at it no matter what, like somebody Uh I can, I can tell somebody I love, 
till I'm blue in the face to go get help. Like, I love you. I, I want to see you succeed. You have so much potential, all these things. But if that person is not ready, then th- th- they're, they're probably not going to go get the help that they need. And I think that's a really important thing that, that you said there. That's right. And one of the, and you bring up a wonderful point. Cause one of the questions I get a lot is how do you know when they're ready? You yeah. just really, and, and if it was, there's no magic pill to know that it's mm-hmm. the right circumstances the, at the right moment have to come together yep. and the right, you know, the, the right emotional trigger has to be there. And it's certain it, what a lot of people would think, well, it was when I was, it should be, if, if you look at logic, well, you'd think, oh, well, that should have been the moment, right? Yeah. Yeah. Logically, <laughs> I mean, but yeah, we yeah all know it that. was, it, 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 it wasn't, yeah. and there's no magic formula for, as a family member to figure out when that moment is, we can only hope that we are there and ready to support when that moment comes, right? How, uh, no, and that's, that's absolutely. And that's, that's what we do is we, I guess there's a lot of patience involved and there's a lot of, uh, there's gotta be a lot of love involved too, when we're talking about supporting somebody else. But, um, what, what did this do to your relationship with your brothers actually going through this? Like, has it been tough for you to, um, you know, to repair, a lot of the a lot of the damage and a lot of the things that have done over time. I mean, obviously it sounds like you guys have a great relationship now, but I'm sure at the time it was probably pretty tough. That's a great question. When they dropped me back off at my house after taking my car keys and after taking me home, very frustrated because I wouldn't uh, go into residential treatment or anything. And I'm in a very privileged situation, Shane. I, I acknowledge that. At that, I had a very wealthy brother. They were making phone calls from the psychiatric facility to residential treatment centers, mm-hmm. uh, willing to self-pay without regard to insurance, hmm. and I wouldn't go. And I and I was in a and I acknowledge I am a very privileged uh, person in terms of having that kind of support in my family. That's how much you know, and having a brother who can do that. Yeah, that's how much my family cared. You know, I mean, they love me, so they take me back home, and my only thought about my relationship with my brothers was, okay, now I have to not see them anymore. I have to distance from them because Uh, now they know. Yeah, yeah. Now they know. So the solution to them knowing is not to have a relationship. Wow. So I can continue getting high instead. So I can continue continue getting high. And I retreated further in circles, further into just the circles of the people I got high with. Was the jail in the DWI, was that after the suicide attempt? Was that later on or was that? No, that was much earlier. That was in 1991. Oh, okay. After my first divorce, I I got a DWI and I beat it. Maybe I should, you know, maybe I shouldn't have. (laughs) (laughs) I don't believe in revisionist recovery, but you look back. uh, (laughs) But uh, because it would have had other consequences moving forward as well, obviously. But uh, no, I, I actually beat it. The state trooper retired. Oh, wow. I got put over by a Texas state trooper and he retired and moved away before my trial and he wouldn't come to testify. Wow. Wow. That's yeah. I was very lucky. I was very lucky. I was very lucky. So what, what leads to, what was that moment for you where you finally realized that you did want to get sober? You wanted it for you and not for anybody else. And then that ultimately leads to you doing the work that you're doing today. You know, you've written a couple books. Um, where does that go? That's a great question. So I, I be, you know, I continued my drug use, three failed marriages, failed relationships. And in 2006, I met a girl. And of course, I met her. I was drunk and high. She uh, 
drank very rarely, but I was out on one of my week-long cocaine and alcohol birthday celebrations, right? Yeah. Every birthday is about a week-long cocaine yeah. binge. As if I needed an excuse to do yeah. a lot of cocaine. <laughs> Even better. So we began dating, and I was, again, able to hide my issues from her. She moved in with me. Easter 2007, she went away for the weekend to Houston to visit her family. Mm-hmm. I went out with some friends. Next thing I know, it's two days later. She's, I'm in bed. She's staring down at me. There's drugs everywhere. There's alcohol everywhere. I had had a two-day drug and alcohol-induced blackout. Wow. And now, obviously, she knows because <laughs> there's cocaine everywhere and there's alcohol everywhere. And, of course, I'm a lawyer thinking, what excuse can I give her <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to make this go away, right? Yeah. I'm okay. trying to my, – my mind's working and first trying to figure out what happened, where the days went. Yeah. And obviously – and she's a lawyer as well. And obviously there was nothing I could say. So what I decided to do was, okay, I'll have her take me back to Green Oak Psychiatric Facility and she's like, you've been to a psychiatric facility before? Of course, I hadn't told her any of my past. <laughs> yeah. I'm the respectable lawyer, right? I'm the yeah. respectable lawyer. And we're standing in the parking lot of Green Oak, Shane, uh-huh. and a few things occurred to me. One, there wouldn't be a third trip back because I'd be dead. Hmm. Two, that she was going to leave me. I'd leave, right? And you know what, Shane? She didn't leave me. She stood by me. Hmm. We, we ended up dating for over 10 years while I – you know, found my sobriety, built my sobriety, re- rebuilt the trust that I had broken. And I had to do it for me, not for her. Yeah. Cause pe- you know what? People come and go in relationships, but you have to be sober, right? Yeah. Regardless. Yeah, totally. And this, and we ended up getting married and we've been married just over a year now. So. Oh, nice, man. Congratulations. I'm glad I, that there's a, um, a, a, a good ending to that story, man. That's really cool. I, I wasn't sure yeah. what you were going to say if you guys had split or whatever, but that's no, really no. awesome, man. Congrats. Thank you. So not all relationships will survive that, but yeah. ours, it can't happen. Yeah, that's awesome. And the third thing that I thought about in that parking lot, Shane, was something our father said to us growing up. Our, my father's still alive. He's the veteran of the uh, Pacific in the Korean War, World War II in the Korean War. Hmm. And he would say to us, uh, Mark Jeff Brian or Brian Jeff Mark, if you have siblings, you know, they get it wrong all the yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. we, we get it. You're talking to us. We get yeah. it. He'd say, wise may come and go. Well, for me, they certainly have. <laughs> and he's joking, of course. Yeah. He's being tongue-in-cheek. Girlfriends may come and go. But when push comes to shove, all you have is each other. No matter where you go in life, no matter what happens, you pick up the phone and you call your brother and you tell your brother you love him and you ask your brother if there's anything you can do for him. I thought about that. He used to say that to us in one form or another all the time. My father was yeah. the middle of three boys. He and his older brother fixed cars in Pittsburgh from the end of the Korean War till his older brother died. He understood the love of brothers, the bond of brothers. And I thought about that in that parking lot, and I realized that I was just so close to losing my family. Hmm. Because not losing their love, because families, we hope they love us unconditionally, and we hope they do. And But there's a willingness, There's a, you know, there's going to be a limit on them wanting to watch us destroy our lives, right? Oh, yeah. We're not going to at least try, you know, try to take that first step in a recovery, that step I had never taken. And if I thought about that, and if you want to know how that gift stuck, Shane, that bond of brothers, 
all these decades later in Dallas, Texas, 1,200 miles from where we grew up, Mark, my younger brother, my father, and I all live walking distance to each other. Oh, wow. That's cool, man. That is not an accident. Yeah. And so that was the, that was it. Uh, it was the fam- it was the fear of losing my family. Yeah. That was my motivator and the fear of dying, the fear of losing my family and the fear of dying that were my motivators to for the next day to begin my journey into recovery. What is, so what is what does life look like today for you, Brian? 12 step, my journey uh, I walked into 12 step April 8, 2007. So 12-step was a big part of my recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, I get therapy every week. I still work on loving myself. I have a wonderful relationship with my brothers. I have a wonderful relationship with my mom. We were able to repair that relationship. I, I've written a book, and I spend a lot of time speaking about my recovery, particularly in the legal profession, because the legal oh, yeah. profession is a profession in crisis from the standpoint of drinking. Yeah. Uh, we know that... Over 21% of all licensed attorneys, according to a very uh, big study that came out in February, are problem drinkers. Hmm. To compare that, what is it in the population, one in seven or one in eight? And if you are a millennial lawyer practicing under 10 years, it goes up over 33%. So are a profession that, that, that needs to, you know, that needs to come become self-aware of these issues and so that is why I wrote The Addicted Lawyer, Tales of the Bars, Booze, Blow, and Redemption. And I, now I write about those issues and I talk about those issues, hoping to change the uh, paradigm within the legal profession and in recovery in general. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And, I'll, and, and folks out there listening, we'll be sure to uh, put a link to The Addicted Lawyer uh, in, inside the show notes. I'm sure you can pick it up on Amazon, any of the major uh, platforms as well. Um, man, uh, Brian, like phenomenal story, man. Like, I mean, uh, just thank you for being such an open book and sharing and talking about some really difficult things. I mean, um, you know, those types of, of personal stories, especially with, um, you know, with, with the amount of publicity that, uh, that, that your family receives, um, you know, you guys are a well-known family, um, and, and you're out there speaking out against this stuff and you've, you've been able to rid that shame and, and use those things that, that you went through back in the day as such a powerful force now to move forward and help other people, man. So I just want to congratulate you on that. And, uh, and, and I think it's an awesome thing. And I really appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing, uh, some of your story. Oh, thank you, Shane. And it was such, it had been an honor to come on such a wonderful show. Uh, I've now I've subscribed to your podcast. I get your newsletter and it's funny. I, I, I like to joke, you know, about <laughs> me sharing all of the things that have happened to me. If Mark runs for president, no one's going to have anything on me. Right. <laughs> it's they a good say, thing. Well, yeah. They say, well, your brother did this. Well, that's chapter three of my book. <laughs> yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a good thing you, you're getting out in front of it right now, man. That's for damn yeah, sure. I didn't do it for those reasons. Yeah, but yeah no, I, I, I got you. I, no, for sure, for sure. So, um, real quick before we go, uh, two things. Um, number one, um, where can do you have any? Is there any upcoming projects? Any links you want to share? So, social media, like I said, I'll put the addicted lawyer. Uh, I'll put the link in the show notes. Is there anything else you want to uh, plug or where people can reach you at? Sure. You can go to my website, www.briancuban.com, where you can link to my blog. I do a lot of blogging on recovery and not just in the legal profession overall. Uh, Also, all of my upcoming appearances are on there. 
And I, I am very accessible. Brian, just email me at Brian with an I at BrianCuban.com. Awesome, man. Last question for you, and then we'll wrap this up. To someone out there listening right now, maybe they're dark, maybe they're in a spot, maybe they have a family member who's really struggling, um, what would you say to them, Brian? Say you're not alone. Reach out to somebody because as shameful, yeah, shame is a natural feeling. Loneliness is a natural feeling. But people aren't mind readers. Let them know because they want to help. People do want to help. Thanks, Brian. Brian Cuban on Sober Guy Radio. Uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in today. You can get more information at thatsoberguy.com. Peace, love, respect. Keep your blood clean.